Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? The kind people at Beer52 are offering a free case of eight craft beers sourced and created from the best breweries on the planet. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £5.95 for postage. Each case is delivered direct to your doorstep so you do not need to leave your house. Beer52 is the world's most popular craft beer discovery club with over 150,000 members that they send a brand new case to every month. Each month's case has a different theme. Past themes have included beer from New Zealand, South Africa, Korea, all over the USA and Europe. As an independent British company, Beer52 are passionate about the UK craft beer scene and they continue to support it during this difficult period. If dark beer is not your thing, you can simply choose a light option and your case will come with the award-winning beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Don't worry, though, if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time. Just go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom to get your case of eight beers for £5.95. Anyway, on with the show. Ben Stokes' masterclass, in which he scored 254 runs and took three for 59 across the test, helped England level the Wisdom Trophy in Manchester. I'm Yaz Rana, and looking back at that England win with me is the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Joe Harmon, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, and Ben Garner, the managing editor of Wisdom.com. Welcome to the show. Exciting times. Um, ben, that pretty much was the, the complete performance from Ben Stokes. He showed an, an adaptability with a bat in a single test that most batsmen would be happy with showing over the course of a career. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And it's, it's not the first time he's done it either, um, and probably won't be the last. I mean, yeah, the, the, the first innings, 100, his slowest ever, first class 100, first time he's batted. 300 balls or anywhere close to that in, in a test match. And then second innings, England's fastest test 50 by an opener, including, and yeah, and there were amazing shots in both things. But yeah, the first was about the, the leaves. And there's a stat from Crickviz going around that he left more than any England batsman in their database, maybe. Yeah, it was a, an incredible performance from an incredible cricketer who keeps who keeps doing stuff like this, but is now doing it like almost every every game or at least every other game. Yeah, we are witnessing something quite special, I guess. I liked how he said he was happier with getting to facing 300 balls than he was to get these 100 because he said he'd never thought he'd face 300 balls. A nice little tribute to Joe Denley as well. (laughs) The triple entry. The triple entry. Um, I was thinking after the test finished, I can't, I don't think I can remember an England player being this good. Joe, is that that fair? Can you remember an England player being this dominant? I mean, um, he, 
his influence over Holt Hess is extraordinary. For a long time, he didn't really have the career numbers to back it up. But he's starting to now. In 2020 alone, he averages 76 with the bat and 20 with the ball, which is, is quite good. Uh, in my lifetime, not really. There have been kind of brief moments. Michael Vaughan um, peak batting period um, during that Ashes series when he went to world number one. Steve Harmison with the ball. Flintoff around 05 and the year before that. Um, but certainly Stokes as, as with bat and ball and over what's quite a prolonged period of time now. Um, and the fact that he's doing it in white ball cricket as well, just to show what a complete cricketer he is. Um, I've not seen anything like it from an English cricketer. And we are getting towards the point in terms of an all-rounder where I've not seen this from any all-rounder anywhere. I mean, Callis obviously is going to take some beating in terms of stats, but in terms of dragging his team to victory, Stokes has done that a lot recently in a way that I don't remember Callis doing, certainly not in the same manner. He's shot up the test rankings now. He's now the number one ranked all-rounder in the world, number three ranked bats in the world. So is there a danger that because he's so good and can do kind of everything that he might burn out. I mean, he had to stop bowling at the very end of day five. Apparently nothing too much to worry about. Uh, he was complaining of stiffness and Stuart Ball said, don't bowl, please stop. Um, do you think there's a, there's a danger he might burn out? Uh, there would be if he wasn't psychopathically committed to training, fitness and all the rest of it these days. Uh, I'm actually quite looking forward to when he's 32 and he's got 250 test wickets and then he just bowls off breaks for the last five years of his test career as he moves past 12,000 runs at an average of 53 and a half. I'm quite looking forward to those years, actually. Uh, just going back to your question about if, if we've ever seen anything like this, it's it's probably quite a hackneyed point, but it's fun nonetheless. If you compare him to the other two big English all-rounders, both in the story was one of two halves and both of them made one test 100 in his last 50 test matches and he averaged 35 to 40 with the ball albeit he'd had a bad back, bad back and a back operation but both in the second half of his story was a kind of an embarrassing imitation of the first half it was an inversion of how good he was in that first half both of them was untouchable for the first 50 test matches of his career and awkward to say the least for his second half the thing with Stokes is that he's 29 and a bit and he's just getting better and better and better. And the only comparison that I can think of is Imran. Now, Imran would win test matches with bat and ball, more with ball, but he would win test matches by sheer force of will. And the second half of Imran's career was stronger than the first half of Imran's career. Imran was the inversion of both of them, if you like. Imran averaged 50 with the bat and 18 with the ball in the second half of his career. And then you have to obviously factor in the charisma side of things, the talismanic element. Now, you mentioned Callis. Callis, was, Callis would adorn cricket matches, but he wasn't talismanic, was he? He didn't drive games on the back of his charisma. Imran is the only comparison I can now come up with when you talk about Benjamin Stokes. Uh, we, we've had this sense with him that, that he, is, he is a great in the making. I spoke, I spoke to Will Smith, his old captain at Durham, six, seven years ago when he was 20 years old. And I said, how good is he? He says, he's the best cricketer I've ever seen. And that's when he was 20. Um, so this has been coming and now it's here. Uh, and what you saw last week, it's tempting to say it's, a, it's, it's his latest graduation ceremony, but he's been doing it now for two years. It's hard to really na nail it down. Uh, as Root said, we're in the presence of greatness. And we can now say that without our tongue in our cheek and without hyping things up unduly. 
we are genuinely watching one of the great cricketers of our time and maybe of all time. Well, when he's playing like he is and bowling like he is, particularly because I think we just he is just established as a top class batsman now. England are effectively playing with with 12, 12 players. I mean, it's when you when it looked like when Stokes went off with what turned out to be indigestion on uh, on day four. I was just thinking, well, how do they replace him? Do you bring in? You probably need to replace him with a frontline batsman because that's his most important job in the side. So you say Denley or Lawrence comes in, for instance. Well, then you're losing so much on the bowling. Or you go the other way and you bring in... Or Sam Curran keeps his place and you bring in another seamer. But then Sam Curran up against Stokes' batting, obviously that they're just not in remotely the same class. So he is... Well, the true value of an all-rounder is being that valuable to a side. And, and there is no one in the world who can compete with Stokes in that terms of uh, how influential he is on, on a single side. Yeah, I would just add, well, two things. Firstly, the, the indigestion thing was funny because on, on the TV they were saying, uh, uh, oh, Stokes is going off, it must be really, really serious. And it turns out he just needed a Rennie's. But, but on the bowling side of things, there was a stat from ESPN Crick Info that no England bowler has, uh, has had a higher percentage of their wickets come breaking stands of 50 or more. So he's only like employed to bowl really when... England most need a wicket and all the other times they kind of let the glory boys do the work and he's still got a bowling average of just over 30 and he's he is in a way I mean I think Archer now probably pips him but for a long time he was England's most versatile bowler and that he could swing it miles he could he could bang it in he could bowl dry he kind of do it all and yeah Joe's exactly right that I, I don't really know how you replace him but I guess we are gonna to have to talk about that if there's the possibility that, that he that England might just say uh, for one test in summer at least that you just bat you don't bowl they ha- they have to manage him now, and while it's gone out of fashion to look too far ahead because it seems like it's denigrating what's to come immediately, but the reality is that they are building for next winter, and they have to manage him. He is Herculean up to a point, but he's still a human being. Uh, they have to manage the number of one-day games he plays. They have to be prepared to say to him, as you rightly say, at some point this summer, if you're playing six back-to-back test matches without even one break in the middle, you can't play cricket at that level of intensity doing the whole lot. I mean, he must have been on the pitch for, what, 97% of the last test match. You can't do this indefinitely without running up against problems. You don't want him to collapse. You don't want him to break down. You need him fresh as a daisy for India. But, my God, you need him in, in his prime in a year and a bit's time. It's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Because if Stokes plays as a batsman, he, he is still available to bowl. And yeah. then you get down to that session where you just need a wicket. Yeah. How do you tell him you're not bowling? I, I, I was, you're right. I was watching the, the, the post-match stuff, and obviously Root spoke really well about him yesterday. Um, but it kind of put me in mind of Messi at Barcelona and how he cast this huge shadow over the present and the future, there is that sense of everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. We have a genius. We have the greatest of all in our midst. So we can just hang on to him and he will take, take us with him. But then one day, he's not going to be there anymore. And I was just watching Root and he must be thinking, my God, I'm the luckiest bugger in, in cricket history to have this man alongside me. But one day he's not going to be there. That is, a, that is a fatalistic way of looking at these things. But it did strike me yesterday that Stokes is now so far down the line he is so so all all powerful omniscient in this setup that uh 
yeah, it kind of brings its own sort of fragility to it. You know, if he turns an ankle tomorrow and he's out for eight months, what does English cricket look like then? Anyway, oh, don't, let's don't not dwell on that yeah, for the moment. <laughs> uh, Joe, what, what would you do if Stokes can't bowl for a test match? Would you, you, you talked about the two options, bringing in a batsman or a bowler. What would you do? Um, so if he can't play in a test match? No, if he can't bowl in a test match. Um, I think you just have to play a specialist batsman and, and make do with the best you can. Um, Root would have to bowl a few more overs. One option would be potentially you, you don't play the spinner. You play four seamers and, and Root is your, is your spinner. It wouldn't be the way I'd, I'd want to go. This is the problem. It doesn't work. It works so perfectly at the moment because Stokes is doing what he, what he does. You, you could get funky, I suppose, and potentially drop a batsman move, butler up to six, bring in Curran and Wokes, say, to sort of buttress that. Everyone's a spot too order. high. I'm, yeah, sure, sure. But it's, be, it's, it is a tricky one. Tempted to bat Stokes at three? If I, I, think, I, think, I think against the West Indies batting lineup, you can probably get away with, with the four bowlers, as Joe outlines, with Root as your fifth. I think you can get away with that. Um, if, but if, yeah, if Butler down, was the down player. Down the line, it becomes a bit trickier. I mean, in India, for example, you need all, all the artillery you can get and against stronger batting lineups, and it might be a, a trickier decision. If Butler had b- become the test player that we all hoped he would do... He then, will! Then, <laughs> Don't worry about Then him. obviously Butler at six would have, would, would have been perfect, but um, he's still a long way from that yet. Yeah. Just you touched on it, I think the Stokes at three point would be an interesting one for how you actually fit in the extra, the extra batsman. I think that would be a, a pretty viable shout as well. And then you kind of go with your, yeah, your four strongest bowlers, which... Um, I guess maybe we'll discuss at some point who, who we think that those are. No, I was thinking actually Stokes bats at three, Crawley is left outside for a test and you just play an extra bowler, basically. Right, He I plays see. Curran and Wokes at seven and eight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get onto the bowlers later on. Um, it was interesting that it was Stokes's, he scored his slowest test hundred, but also he scored the fastest 50 ever by an England opener <laughs> in the same test. Um, and in the first innings, it appeared that he took a leaf out of Dom Sibley's book. Sibley scored English, England's slowest Test 100 in 20 years and England's second slowest home 100 ever um, as England scored 400 in the first innings of a home test for the first time in three years. Um, there was some criticism of his strike rate and particularly his rotation of the strike against spin bowling. Joe, do you think that, that is warranted at all? Or should England just appreciate they've got an opener who can bat all day? No, I thought the, the criticism was harsh. Um, yeah, at times on the Sky um, coverage I was watching, way, way too harsh. I think Michael Holding came quite close to calling him selfish at one stage. I think he was talking about the latter part of his innings. Um, no, I think it's ridiculous. Sibley was picked to do a job which is done perfectly. You can't expect him to then start playing in a way that he is, I mean, basically not really capable. And that's not what he's been picked for. I mean, obviously you would have liked him to kick on more after he'd got his 100, but that's not for the want of trying. It was a difficult pitch to, to score on throughout. We saw Ben Stokes wanted to accelerate earlier than he did but was was struggling to time it um no and I think we need to be careful I mean I think Sibley's a really strong character and I I, 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 he's an impressive bloke to speak to and that he seems very unflappable and also very like personable doesn't seem like things affect him too much but this stuff does get in players heads It, it happened with with Nick Compton who this was partly Trevor Bayliss saying that he wasn't scoring quickly enough, but the media really got onto that as well. And then Compton started trying and trying to play in a way that didn't suit him at all well, and he wasn't getting scores anymore. Mm. Um, it'd be a real shame if if that happened to Sibley because he's doing exactly what England wanted out of an opener um, since Cook retired, and even before Cook, the, the the partner we wanted for Cook, 
Um, so no, he should just keep on doing what he's doing and he'll have days where he scores more fluently and he'll have days where he gets a bit stuck and that's fine. That's that's true of all batsmen. It'll be more exaggerated with Sibley because he is limited in his stroke play, but no, he's doing a he's doing a good job. Just keep on doing it. I think because of his style as well, that you almost won't notice as easily if he's not timing it well because it's just quite ugly all the time. Yeah. So I actually thought on day one, um, even for his even for him, he wasn't playing that fluently. So like there was one where there's one kind of like you know how he plays that quite straight shot off his hips. It's yeah. not really a flick. It's like kind of a straight shot off his hip. Um, and he nailed one and went before. It was like, that's the first one he's timed all day. Like even, I think he he was struggling. It's not just his style. It was, he was struggling as well. Um, he was, the, the out, it's worth saying the outfield was, was slow really as well. Slow, and the, there were yeah. a lot of those deflections, which he scores a lot of his runs with that would have gone for four on a lot of grounds, but only went for two. Um, so I think that needs to be taken into account as well. I thought he was actually more fluent in South Africa from what I saw. Uh, you, you really fancied him through, through mid wicket, through straight mid on and through square leg. Okay, he has this issue on on the hit where they've identified there's a bit of a weakness there and he gets caught around the corner. But you still fancied him. Anything that was short, anything that was uh, foolish on the pads, anything was it was even on off stump. You'd fancy him to punch it down the ground and so on. You didn't see much of that this week, but he still turned around a hundred and laid the bedrock for 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 a four day win as well. So you can understand. Mikey up to a point he's had a good few weeks but he, he was wrong there and Joey, Joey was right if you win a test match in four days then you can't be accused of being batting too slowly the caveat for me and I watched him closely against Roston Chase who doesn't really turn it you know he's a canny bowler but he doesn't really do much and this was a day two day one day two pitch he was shotless against the spinner and I don't think it was by choice he was trying to play shots he was trying to find but the punch through the offside, he played the odd reverse sweep. The, sh- the first shot he kind of launched, obviously he got out to, it was a bit of an ugly you know, Wahili over, over to mid-wicket. In India, you can't, I don't think you can just soak up time and be satisfied with 20 and 120 balls in India. I just don't, the, the pitches are too good. The, the challenge is too, is too stark. And, and my concern with him going into India is that he won't have anywhere to go. He won't have an outshot against against the spinners. Not that they just bowl spinners deadly anymore, which is which is important. This is not just you know it's not just a cliched Eng- Indian story. But my, my concern is against against the spinners. He has a technique which is very similar to that against the quicks. And the good players of spin have a have a very different approach. They have different foot movement. They have a different backlift. They have a different stance. And his his movements which have been trained and ingrained in him now over a period of time are, are the same against the spinners as they are against the quicks. And I think that does get him into trouble. What, why does it matter specifically against the spin? His scoring rate against spin and pace is basically because, the same. Because, because good players, they, end, they manipulate the strike. They don't get too bogged down. If you, get too, if you get bogged down on turning pitches and you don't have anywhere to go and you're playing maiden out after maiden, then you are going to get found out. Your technique... You, there are going to be more catches around the bat. There's going to be more chances created on turning tracks if you don't have an out shot and if you don't have a, the wrists to work it into the gaps and so on. Against the seamers, you can line them up. You can smother it, you can leave it, smother it, leave it. But against the spinners, there's more going on on turning pitches. So you need more more options. And he doesn't, as I've seen yet, have that many options against the turning ball. That said, he is as diligent as they come. And as Joe said, he is an intelligent bloke. Well, I just want to add... very committed. So... He'll spend two months after this summer working hard on it and he'll probably come up with something. This is it. His improvement has been extraordinary. So, I mean, he'd averaged 29 
up until September 2018. And he averages 64 since. Uh, he's already shown in his brief test career he's lost a load of weight because he realised he has to get better in the field and just be fitter in general. There is no reason to assume that he can't do these things and can't get better. Uh, Cook became a fantastic player of spin. Uh, I don't remember him being a particularly good he player. He made 100 on his debut in India. He did. He did. He did. That, that is side. That is true. <laughs> But he became a lot better and had different methods of scoring against Spin as his career developed. That is I true. think I think it's fair to say. Uh, and Sibley might score a ton on his first test in, in India without necessarily being the best player of not, Spin. Not with that backlift, he ain't going <laughs> to. I would just add one more thing on Sibley. That in this test, I don't think he should have done anything differently. But there is an argument that like, because I'm mostly because right now he can't and this is the best way for him to play. But there is an argument that like 120 off 240 balls rather than Whatever it was in the end, three hundred and forty or even more would have uh, would have suited England's purpose. Would have helped them get five hundred on day two rather than four seventy whatever it was. But in India and Australia, which are both five Test series, England aren't going to win three Test matches there. Full stop. I think so. They're going to have to draw quite a lot of games. And in that instance, you do actually want one hundred and twenty off basically as many balls as possible so that you can get away with a few. Because because also India and Australia as well as England can bowl, they are going to rack up some huge scores. So they're going to have to bat for basically as long as possible in like probably a couple of games there if they are going to come away with, with wins there, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. But you do need the game for it as sure. well. Yeah. And you've seen it whenever England, England have gone out there, you've seen it. You have to ha- either have a Cook approach or a Peterson approach. You have to either play shots because there's, a, there's a, a ball with your name on it or you have to be able to manipulate the situation. And Cook was always very good at that. Move from outside off stump behind square and he just takes single after single after single. And then with that kind of frightening concentration thing, the Abu Dhabi innings is a good example. He batted for, what, 10 or 11 hours, 270 or whatever it was. Uh, you need that kind of combination. My concern with Sibley is that he will get stuck. And if you get stuck, you get out. It's only a matter of time. But we shall see. Uh, I was looking at the slowest England test hundreds ever and I think it was a John Edrich hundred in the 70-71 Ashes, which was a seven-test series, yeah. that England won 2-0. So yeah. uh, that's, that's... They didn't get that's one LBW. They didn't get really? one LBW. In the, the whole series. series yeah. <laughs> that's, that's maybe why. Still, still um, won it and John Snow had a fight. Good, good tour, that one. Um, one of the plus points of Sibley and Stokes basically batting all day is that it really tied out the West Indies attack. Both Joseph and Gabriel left the field on day two. With three back-to-back tests, do you think, Ben, that they'll be able to field the same four quicks the second Old Trafford test? I think they'll they'll really, really try because there is a reasonably significant drop-off afterwards. I guess the, the, the one thing they might well consider is bringing in uh, Raheem Cornwall, possibly dropping one. I mean, you're not really going to lose much of the batting if you drop Shy Hope uh, at this point, unfortunately. And so you're, you're playing sort of, a, I guess, a four-man attack and then you've also got Jason Holder so you can give them all more of a rest. Ross and Chase did still do quite a lot of bowling, but there's a chance. I mean, and they have managed that reasonably well. I mean, they've tried to go to the part-timers when, like, pretty quickly, so that, you know, the quicks aren't doing the donkey work. But oh, Shane Thomas is with he, the squad. He's in the reserves. Uh, I think uh, the on the Caribbean cricket, the Santok and Nagel from the Caribbean cricket pod said he was mostly picked to give them kind of Joffre Archer-style practice. Which but was, he is with them. He's he's in the country, yeah, and and with and with the group, yeah. I think uh, Kimar Holder is the um, is he the most likely? Yeah, I think so. And and you know he's he's highly rated, but he's not played a test. I think I'm right no. in saying. So, oh, Shane blew England away, right, in one of the ODIs as well. And 
Took a five for, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the St. Lucia ODI possibly or something. He might like have been. That. I think Holder was there was the leading fast bowler in their re- most recent first class. I know position. they think he's fabulous, don't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. Tall and um, live and So so they have quick. options, but these are you know, these are the, the established quicks and I think they will try and find a way to play them. But yeah. I, if think, you I like, think you're really asking for trouble to to wheel Shannon out there again for a third game. Third game in, in two and a half. That said though, I thought when he came up for his first ball of that test there is no way he's getting through this. But he does keep coming. Well, albeit with a few breaks. Through, he kinda of ran out and then sort of turned around, went back again and same thing happened again. You could basically not walk halfway through the first test and then bowl the spell of the game. Um, so then you can never write Gabriel off. And he, lo- he looks a bit dissatisfied, kind of whatever's going on. So you can't tell <laughs> if it's because there's a complaint or just because he's annoyed that someone's driven before. It's a- um, just a quick question about something that wasn't important at all in the end. On the, well, that, 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 that's the, <laughs> the best kind of question. Absolutely everything we've ever said. Um, on the morning of day five, Jason Holder used up all three reviews in the space of eleven balls. As England were looking to accelerate towards an early declaration. Pointlessly. The, well, the first two were shockers, pitching yards outside leg stump, going over by another step stump. Basically, it appeared to be a pretty blatant attempt at time wasting and at eleven thirty in the morning. Um, Joe Holder is someone who gets a lot of credit for his leadership, but what did you make of that? That could have been Sack him. <laughs> that could have been crucial if light was fading late in the day. Um, yeah, I mean it's gamesmanship, isn't it? I don't think you looked at the reaction of England's batsmen. I thought they Stokes was having a grin, um, had a quiet word with the umpire about the the balls that kept going down the leg side, which he eventually got wided for. Um, I think he's probably I think it's okay I mean I wasn't angered by it particularly if I was him I might have waited for slightly closer LBW shots <laughs> he seemed to pick the ones that most clearly weren't out as though he was kind of having some, some fun with it um, it didn't seem to me like anyone was too bothered by it the, the three reviews I understand the reasons for why they've, they've brought it in home umpires don't want to be and don't want to be accused of, of kind of unconscious bias having the extra review helps in that regard but it's too many isn't it really having three because there's always one that you there's just a punt um and <laughs> holder used that to his advantage albeit there was no real advantage to be had unless it rained or, or it got dark because they were always going to have to get those overs in on day five i thought the first one might have just been an excuse to see ben stokes get hit in the nuts in in slow-mo again just having sort of got one over on him even though not really um the west but- indies were on the <sighs> Yeah, they were unlucky. They weren't hardly harshly done by because in the end, you know, the the processes are there. Uh, But there were a number of marginals that didn't go their way, especially in the first innings. You know, some real sort of bail trimmers that were turned down and then 40% of the balls taking taking the top of off stump. And yet, of course, because it's been turned down in the first place, they can't overturn it. And there were a number of those, I thought, in the first innings. And... And I don't think it would have changed changed the result by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it would it would have been frustrating for the Windies. It happens like that in cricket, where the, the momentum of the game is going one way, and you just feel that everything's compounded against you. Uh, in the context of that, I don't mind Holder just just taking the mick out of the system on, on day five, having been on the wrong end of it for the last four days before that. And especially considering how monumental the achievement would have been had they drawn the game. Uh, for considering, you know, most people were predicting a, a three-nil whitewash when West Indies arrived for them to retain the Wisdom Trophy. But if you weren't, though, Ben, yeah, I think you might have gone with West Indies to win the first game, and then England to win the next. No, two. no, I, I did oh. in the end go three 0 I think. Uh, oh, okay, right. Yeah, you said it might happen, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, covered which, all bases. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I was pretty right. <laughs> Something will happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but yeah, c- considering that, I mean, I think you take a few like sort of accusations from from the press for the for the point for the you know for, for the team basically. Um, a bit of slowing down of the play. 
uh, is generally not considered. I mean, that's considered smart captaincy, and that just seemed a kind of a slightly comical example of doing that. Really, it wasn't very subtle. And it wasn't. Yeah. It's also been done forever. You know, cricketers have found ways to slow the game down. Uh, gamesmanship has existed forever. So yeah, mm. I don't. I think if it's, if it's there to be manipulated and abused. Uh, then why not? The, the mistake he made, he should have done it in the, on the fourth evening when you could have actually lost overs. The thing is, with the fifth day, you have to bowl them all out. But if you'd done it on the fourth mm. day, then you could have actually chipped away at two or three overs of, of England's innings. It was reasonable for him to assume there'd be some rain or bad light, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we've not talked about the Joffre Archer incident yet. Archer was withdrawn from the England squad in the morning of, of the first day after it emerged he broke biosecurity protocols by visiting his flat on his way, well, on his way from Southampton to Manchester. Um, Brighton is very much not on the way from Southampton to Manchester. He's since tested negative twice for COVID-19. He had to isolate for five days. He's been fined, but he is now available for the third test. Phil, what did you make of the whole episode and how the ECB treated him? I thought the ECB probably have responded quite cannily and well to this. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to see him being penalised for the third test as well. I think an undisclosed fine, a slap on the wrist, um, and a few days in solitary, which is what it is, stuck in your room, hearing the murmurs of a cricket game going on that you should be dominating yourself, but you can't make because you've been a fool. I think there is, that is punishment enough. Uh, he's, he doesn't have a charge sheet, certainly not that I'm aware of. Um, as I wrote in that thing the other day, it turns out you can be the messiah and the very naughty boy. And, and that's, that's where he's... That's, that's what he'll be looking at when, he, when he, he looks back on this week now. He'll, he'll recognise that that was a silly thing to do, to say the least. Um, Giles could have maybe weighed his words slightly more sensitively, I thought, to say this is what was at stake. English Creek could have lost tens of millions of pounds on the back of this, this decision. However, that was couched in more generally sympathetic points around that such is the nature of the media churn that we, we, you know, we and I say we as well, that line is grabbed, that line is used, that line is then stuck on the top of the headlines and suddenly Archer's jeopardised English cricket. Uh, Silverwood, I thought, struck the tone really nicely afterwards. He said, look, clearly he's been, it's been a regrettable thing. The players will rally around him. Uh, and, and he acknowledged, Silverwood, that you know, you're going to go mad for five days in a room. They've already probably gone mad. They've, they would have all have had their moments of madness over the last 35 days, just like everybody has. Uh, and I think whatever penalty on Joffre would have to have been weighed against the strange, extraordinary nature of the times. So I think overall, the decision is, is, is a fair one, is a good one. Um, England's, England's setup is a very open, progressive, lenient, liberal kind of approach now. At odds with English cricket historically. Um, if Archer steps out of line again and does something as boneheaded as this, then you'll find that that level of leniency only goes so far. But as things stand, I think it's okay. I think it was uh, a commensurate response. And hopefully, he'll play in the third test match. I think he should. Ben, comparisons will inevitably be made to Alex Hale, who's not played for England since he was dropped just before the World Cup last year. Um Kind of based on Giles's language, saying it it was potentially a disaster, could have cost England tens of millions of pounds. And when the phrase breach of trust has been used generally when describing why Hales has continued to, to not be involved in England's white ball squad since the last World Cup, 
Um, do you think that comparison is at all fair? Uh, or is it just completely different? It's, it's, it's not completely different in that it is, it is trust issues. It is uh, the question of, of, you know, putting very important things in danger is, is yeah, that's the matter in both, in both cases. I think Hales, there was a, sort of a, a couple of misdemeanors rather than just the one. But I, I think also, uh, I think there's possibly more to the Hale story that hasn't been told and might not be told. And when Morgan says that the trust has still kind of not been built back up I think that's that's in the end the thing is that trust is a a personal thing between sort of a captain and a team and an individual and in Joffre Archer's case for whatever reason perhaps how kind of repentant he's able to be perhaps because it's a first offence or whatever it might be uh, it seems that England trust him not to do that kind of thing again and it seems that Morgan at least doesn't feel that way about Hale. So I think, I think essentially, maybe if Morgan was the captain of the test team, uh, it might be different. And also, I mean, I mean, this is, this is perhaps harsh on Hales, but it could be a question of how important Archer is. I mean, Ben Stokes wrote in his, in his book that Stokes, that Hales wasn't the calibre of player you could make an exception for. And Archer also is that, not that I'm quite suggesting that's the case in this instance, but, um, but yeah, that, 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 might come into play out who wrote that in the book sorry I didn't catch that Ben Stokes in his book right said that Hales wasn't of a certain calibre for exceptions to be made Mm -hmm. this was his interpretation of how Morgan and the management dealt with Hales yeah this was in the book last summer so before we've had the rumbling on continuing I guess the Hales thing but yeah interesting well there you go there's your moral triangulation right there echoes of the Peterson thing Peterson was arguably over the hill by 2013-14 and so was not quite as indestructible, untouchable a cricketer as he would have been four or five years ago and thus they were able to to make unco- yeah, unpopular and difficult decisions around him. Um, th- this is where it gets ever murkier because in cricket results over- overweigh so much of moral positions and moral stances. If Alex Hales had been the best and indeed only hope for England to win the World Cup last year they'd have probably found a way to get him in the team. As it was, they had any number of, of match winners. Yeah. So and, actually, and, and, and popularity as well, even within the team. Within the, within the team, even if that's unconscious. Yep. Um, if people like having someone around, yeah, they are naturally going to be more inclined to be le- more lenient than than with someone they don't. And I mean, Morgan has pr- pretty much said that in the Hales case. Really, he doesn't think he's a good influence on the group. Yeah, I'm actually struck a bit as well, Joe, by piece you wrote recently about Andrew Simons and a line from Adam Hollyoak that he was never going to have a, a sort of slow playing out of his career because uh, there were sort of like the, the troubles in, in the dressing room that, that when sort of he became sort of just like as good as the next best player, everything else would all of a sudden be the deciding factor between the two of them. So he'd suddenly find it very hard to get a game. Whereas when he was one of the best players in the world, then you can kind of ignore all the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess the irony with Hales, at least in T20 cricket, is he is one of the best players in the world. Mm. Uh, England just happened to have quite a lot of those available to them. Um, but... I think most people would have Hales in their best England T20 team just in terms of playing ability. Um, Joffrey Archer's return gives England an almighty selection headache for the third test, for which the weather forecast is pretty bad, by the way. Oh, is uh, it? Yeah, it's pretty oh, bad. This is all uh, null and void. <laughs> well, not quite. You know, weather forecasts aren't always right. Um, one of our listeners, Alex Bullions, asks, should Archer play the next test? I think so. But regardless of his actions, you've now got Wokes and Curran knocking on the door too. Ben, presuming Stokes is fit to bowl, which three seamers or four would you pick? Uh, I would pick Chris Wokes, James Anderson. Oh, sorry. Chris Wokes, Stuart Broad and Geoffrey Archer. 
leaving out Jimmy Anderson. Yes, I think those are the three that have bowled best in the series so far. And I think that it's, there is a blend of, of building for the future versus playing for the here and now. And that right now it's hard to say when you, when you balance the fact that you worry slightly with the injuries with James Anderson, you worry with the, the amount Chris Wokes can bowl in comparison to him. Perhaps they're a close to equivalence in English conditions at least. So, and also you offer, you get the, the batting with Chris Wokes, which has tailed up a bit, but it's still obviously an upgrade and England's tail, I think they, I mean, you, you, you even saw it in the first things actually, I think that it did help them sort of push up to 450, felt a bit more secure that they weren't going to just get bottled up 400 once that partnership was broken. So yeah, that's, that's the way I'd go. Joe? I would definitely go Broad and Archer and then it's weighing up Anderson or Wokes for me. I think Mark Wood probably misses out. Uh, it's a really tough call to make. I would naturally lean towards Anderson based on the fact that he's taken quite a lot of wickets over many, many years. Uh, but you do you look at the batting, you take out Curran and Wokes and add in Anderson and Archer, that's weakening the batting quite a bit there. So that is something to take into account. Also, Wokes bowled brilliantly in the second innings and bowled quite unluckily in the first innings, I thought, even though he ended up with three. But at one stage, he'd gone wicketless for quite a long time, hadn't he? It's really it's really difficult. I think with Wokes and Anderson, I'm going to sit on the sense slightly and just say whoever seems in better shape, if Wokes is suffering any ill effects at all from this match, having not played a test match for a while, then he sits out. If Anderson is not absolutely at his best in the nets, then then he misses out. So that's that's the way I'd go. Phil? Anderson with Broad and Archer. Uh, bearing in mind as well that you've got three test matches coming thick and fast straight after this one. Uh, just had a quick look. August the fifth is the first test uh, against Pakistan, which is two weeks away. So, you know, you, you might go with Wokes because he bowled beautifully. Uh, I think they'll go with Anderson. I would personally go with Anderson, but again, it's it's the case that Wokes will play three of the six test matches this summer. Anderson might play four of the six test matches. Archer will probably play four of the six. Broad will play four of the six. That's just how the nature of this summer is going, and it's and it's right to do it like that. Um, and it's also a reflection of the modern game as well. You know, the great position that England's cut, have now found themselves in, they have the two two legends, and then you have some replacements that are now getting to the point where they are legit replacements, and you don't lose that much for replacing them, as you saw with Wokes for Anderson in this test match. It's a good place to be. But it is going to be one of the challenges for Joe Root over the next... Massively. ...year, two years, three years, depending on how long Broad and Anderson continue for, because... Whilst obviously it's amazing to have this luxury of fast bowling options, there are some big egos involved here and some big reputations. And everyone, I think, everyone said Broad was fantastic in coming out and, and saying what he did and being so honest. And we all, certainly working in the media, appreciate that. Uh, and he's come back and backed it all up. But you can't have that happening all the time. You can't have a player who's dropped speaking quite as passionate as that each time they don't play, I think. I think Broad was in, within his rights to say that. But there is also going to be, you can't get to a point where the England selectors or the England selecting party are thinking, we should probably give Broad or Anderson a game here because we don't want to piss them off too much. They didn't play the last one. They've got to pick the best bowling attack for each test, depending on the conditions, fitness, all those other factors, not be thinking about Broad and Anderson have taken all these, all these wickets and they're going to be pissed off if we don't pick them. It's a really challenging thing to do and, and Stokes kind of stuck his head above the parapet in assuming it was Stokes who made that final call 
in dropping Broad in his kind of first stint as test captain and look, it didn't go well. So Broad and Anderson, for them, that's well, look, this is what happens when you, you don't you don't pick pick one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Anderson was a bit different. He'd been out for injury for so long. I, I, it was made perfect sense that he didn't play the second one. This is the time when we get to the point where it's the decider. England has got to pick their best team. They've all played one test as They've well. They've all played one test. If Anderson misses out, that's a big, big story. On Broad... Um, Ben, obviously Stokes was the main man across the test, but it was Broad's pair of three-wicket bursts with the new ball on the fourth evening and the fifth morning that basically opened the game up for England. The game looked dead before uh, that, that spell with the second new ball on the fourth day. Um, is he ahead of Anderson now? And also, um, can you remember a time where Broad has been this effective? Uh, yeah. For a long time. I, I, think, I think he is uh, slightly ahead of Anderson when you can take into account their injury records and just how well Broad has bowled over the past 12 months. I think he probably did bowl as well as this uh, in 2011 and 12, I think going into the India series, when, which England ended up winning 4-0, but India were number one, one, number one side in the world at the time. Broad's place was kind of hanging by a thread and he dominated that series with bat and ball. And then going into the UAE, which England obviously got hammered 3-0, but Broad bowled brilliantly on, on tracks which offered absolutely nothing for the seamers he he bowled dry he was he was threatening so i think i think that is broad's other peak but this is i guess uh his second wave if you like as um the test cricketer is 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 kind of now and he pointed out during an interview in the test that he uh that anderson has taken 130 test wickets since he was the age that broad is now and i mean broad's you know got got all those skills he doesn't rely on the huge pace doesn't seem to be dropping off sniffing if anything he might have got a little bit quicker over the past year and I think that in, in a way for me, the, the closest, although McGrath was sort of consistent in terms of his, uh, his output and didn't go on the, the runs that Broad would in, in a spell, I think that in terms of his style, in terms of, you know, a tall bowler, he's kind of banging away consistently. And I think that that's something. And obviously, you know, McGrath was successful without that, that speed. And I think that, yeah, I, I, yeah Broad, Broad ahead of Anderson for me basically anywhere for the moment yeah he just pitches it up so much more it's true um, as well, yeah. so sky did a thing yesterday that when he, when he got john campbell out he got jim for uh not far off a half volley outside of stump and he bowled exactly the same ball the next ball mm. whereas before i don't think broad would have been as comfortable doing that just just on on the broad thing sky did a brilliant thing where they showed uh the lengths that he's bowled over the last two or three years and how they've uh, they've become fuller uh consi- considerably fuller as well and I think it was NASA who said, in in times gone by, when he got driven in the first over by John Campbell, he'd have automatically pulled his length back. Uh, as it was, he bowled another delivery, almost even a bit fuller, obviously nicked off, and he got that wicket early on. Um, Derek Pringle's written about him in the upcoming magazine, and he says that Broad, more than any other bowler in the last 20-odd years, any other England bowler in the last 20-odd years, changes the direction of cricket matches because... He assesses pitch conditions and the moment in the match better than anybody else and is prepared to live a little, prepared to throw that length up. When, when, he, when he comes in, when he goes in for the kill, Broad is very good at that. Uh, and we've seen that throughout. You know, he's, he's, he is England's match winner. Um, and this is what you saw again. You saw it again last week. But overall, he's, he's bowling a fuller length. And he says himself, he's probably bowled better in the last two years than he's ever bowled before. Um, just briefly, on the 130 test wickets thing that Anderson's taken in the four years, 
since he was since he was broad broad's age now. Broad sat down and worked that out, hasn't he? He yeah. sat down, looked at Crick Info, gone through the scores, gone through the you know the filters and worked it out. That takes a hell of a lot of belief in your in in your yourself, and also a kind of an, an almost sort of borderline psychopathic way of playing the media because he knows exactly what he's saying line after line after line and that's a very powerful line you know if you type in 130 wickets Stuart Broad then it comes up you know um so it's very clever it's a, it's a clever little power play by Broad in, in the latest in a sequence of them frankly he is he's canny isn't he I do think when we it's talk about his, it, yeah. his reading of the game how he deals with the media how impressively he speaks it is strange to think that he's never really been in the mix to be England's test captain on any kind of long-term basis. Um, obviously, fast bowlers don't make good captains. That's that's the line. Uh, but you do get the sense that, that Broad would have made a good one. Uh, I guess he was a bit petulant early in his career, which probably worked against him in that sense. But certainly the last few years, um, I think he'd have been a pretty pretty good candidate. I still think he'd be a good short-term captain. You were actually you were banging this drum a little while ago, yeah. weren't you? So yes, yeah. I think stopgap. Just let Joe Root bat basically. Const- let him concentrate on the batting. Forget about everything else. Broad obviously loves talking to the media. Um, Problem is, obviously, we're talking about rotating the quicks. You can't rotate your captain every true test, though, can you? True, but a point that I think Broad made himself was that he keeps on getting grouped with Anderson. But there is a four-year, there is a four-year age gap. You know, like if you talk, it's quite calling a lot. Me old. I think is Broad closer in age to Wokes than Anderson? I think he is. Um, and England keep on talking about, well, they're both going to go in the next two years. But I mean, Broad's just seen his best mate go on until at least 38. So he might be fancying, oh, I, I can do this too. This is quite um, a shift from Broad though. And it's obviously inspired by how well he's bowling. But he did an interview with us can you remember how many years ago Phil might have even been all out cricket days I think one of the two of them together no no uh, before that he was talking about how his kind of career would shape up from here and he said he, he wasn't going to be one of those cricketers who just played and played and played he was going to go out absolutely at the top and he, he I guess he's, that's not conflicting with what he's saying necessarily but the suggestion at that point was very much that he will not play to a particularly old age uh, and will He's obviously shaping up for a career in the media. That seemed like a kind of natural thing to go into quite quickly. It does now seem that perhaps it's getting dropped. Maybe it's just kind of kind of uh, increased that appetite again. But he, def- he definitely doesn't see himself shifting for a, for a little while yet. It's changed more recently than that. So at the start of lockdown, he did a forty-five minute Instagram live where he was just he was interviewing Jimmy and Anderson would interview him about each other's careers. Um, and Broad actually did. It, it seemed to suggest that. Broad would actually retire before Anderson, mm. from what he's saying. I wonder how much being dropped um, when everyone was available has just spurred him on. It's like, actually, no, I'm bowling as well as I ever have done. You're not playing me. I'm going to show you how good I am. And he admitted, he, he admitted um, in an interview with Sky that he felt under pressure going to the test match. I don't, I don't think he would, him or Anderson would have felt that other than the normal pressure that you get because of the test match, but the actual pressure for your place. And talk about pressure. If Anderson does get picked for this third test... Anderson is only a couple of poor test matches away from really slipping down the queue. And you know what us are like and, and fans are like. It won't take long for people to say Jimmy's passed it when there's so many good candidates out there. The pressure is really on both of them uh, because England have got such good fast bowling stocks, which is, which is great. Talk, sorry, just talking about the queue and about players slipping down it quickly after one poor test match. Uh, none of us have sort of really even discussed Mark Wood as a candidate for the third test match. Obviously, he's got a, a 
poor record in England overall, which is caveated by the first few years when before he'd like his run and whatever, but also didn't have a great deal of success in that uh, first game. And there's also more important challenges to come in India and Australia. And in a way, you kind of think you get a finite amount of cricketer from a finite amount of cricket from Mark Wood, considering the injury problems. Where do you see him in England's pecking order? Is is the likes of Ollie Robinson? now ahead of him or do you see Mark Wood I guess playing another home test this summer I think he'll play another test this summer I think he should I don't think he bowled badly uh, the pitch was not really his kind of pitch he was a bit ineffective in the final day at Southampton um, but but an old tra- Trafford track generally offers a bit more pace I'm not sure this one did particularly uh, but there are still two more test matches to play um, and he's he will be a part of their thinking, uh, as he should be, I think. Uh, but the bigger challenges come elsewhere. The bigger challenges come pace through the air in India and reverse swing, and obviously in Australia. Uh, and if it means that he only plays three or four test matches at home between now and the end of next summer, and he plays generally one-day cricket, then but, but he's fit and ready for the, the Australia tour, then so be it. I think that's absolutely fine. It's what Australia did with their four quicks building into the last series down there. And it's what we should be doing uh, building into this one as well. Just on Broad as well, Broad will be looking at that that winter because he has got unfinished business in Australia. Uh, He took six for on that first day, famously, in in Brisbane uh, with the Courier Mail in his back pocket. You know, he has the psychological profile to want more of that. And he will feel like he's never been able to be part of a team to really properly threaten there since obviously, you know, good old days. But uh, even 10-11, he was out and injured 10-11, he was injured. Second test, yeah, third test. that's it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he will feel like he's got unfinished business there and, and he'll be he'll be doing everything he can to be fit for that. And 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 the, the spearhead as well. I mean, whisper it, talking of Jimmy, and, Jimmy and, and, and Broad, you'd rather that Broad were fit in November next year than you would Anderson in truth. You'd rather that Broad was opening the bowl in, in Australia than you would Jimmy. Would you? Yeah, I would. And, Anderson's got I'd a rather Broad at 35 there. than Jimmy at 39, 40 or whatever. Uh, when Jimmy was, he bowled manfully last time out, but not with a, a massive amount of success, really. Uh, I think Broad, of those two, is, is your better bet in Australian conditions. I think David Warner would prefer Jimmy to be bowling yeah. <laughs> him come next November. Yeah, and, you know, four or five years difference does make a difference ever more it's a really good point actually that if all broad does in the ashes and is get worn out 10 times <laughs> that'll do. Figures, and that's it that's like you definitely take that like a special team in american yeah. football just bring him on get him out um joe how how, how good an off spinner is don best um good question that's a good question he I, I felt sorry for him for a lot of yesterday because actually I, I watched him a lot of the test match and thought he bowled tidily uh and looked threatening at times. Um, he obviously would have liked to bowl at, at the other end, but didn't get the choice of ends because the, the quicks were going so well. Um, but what he has got, he, off, he offers a lot. Uh, he's scoring useful runs down the order. I think he could become a, quite a good batsman, not an eight and a half, as you described him <laughs> recently, Ben. I was going to text you about that, actually. <laughs> I thought I'd wait for a slightly bigger score. Um, he's good in the field as well. There's a kind of... He's a very different type of cricketer, but there's a kind of an Ashley Giles thing developing where he, he offers a, a bit of everything. Uh, crucially, he can tie up an end, which is something that, that Moen has struggled to do throughout his test career. So that even when he's not taking wickets, and he's probably not going to 
tear through too many batting lineups. He is still doing an effective job for the team. Uh, he obviously loves speaking to the media. You definitely get that impression when he's sitting in the, the big brother chair. But he speaks really clearly about his role and what he's been asked to do. And he said he was getting frustrated because he was leaking a few too many runs yesterday. But he, he, he's got a really clear job. And it, it seems like um, Root or, or Stokes in the previous test uh, trust him to keep the runs down in a way that previous captains Root and Cook before him didn't really trust Moen to do. So he's quietly becoming quite an important part of this England side. Um, and on the face of it, you'd think they'd be better off picking Leach against this West Indies side because they're packed so full of, of right-handers who'd, in theory, struggle more against the left-arm spin. But best for the time being has kind of made that place his own, assuming you pick the front-line spinner, which, if, there's a, if the weather doesn't look great, do you think there's any chance they just don't pick a, pick a spinner, just go with the quicks? There is a case to be made for it, but I don't think they will. No. Uh, Bess, the, the big challenge is the, is the winter because he can do a job in England uh, nicely, a Giles-esque job, and he's doing it quite well. Um, he, he fits the mould better than Jack Leach does because he, he fields, he bats. I know Leach made oh, his careful, runs. Phil. Careful, but But he does, he does. And, and he's cocky as well, and they like that. And he likes it. Uh, He's, he's in that kind of mould. He fancies it in the way that he, with Jack Leach, there was more of the, the sense that he was a curio, that he wasn't entirely... He was mildly surprised to be there himself, whereas Leach, whereas Bess, you get that sense that since he was 15, he's decided, OK, I'm going to be England's off-spinner. And, and it, he, he feels like he, he likes that role. It sits more comfortably with him. Leach than, does than Leach seem does. pleasantly surprised by everything that's happening around him. But which does, is quite but does this matter? Leach has never disappointed England. It, it, it matters to the optics of the England side, and it, and they will they will like the fact that they have a cricketer in there who can who can get a few at eight or nine, who can field. Uh, I'm not saying Leach can't. Leach is fine, but he fits the bill. Uh, he he works in that side, and he and he. He carries out a role in England that makes sense. The question is, does he have enough uh, in conditions that help him? And we'll have to wait and see. Um, he's done well considering when he came into the England side initially, he bowled like a drain, truth be told. Um, and he went away and they've been really impressed with him from what I gather. Uh, and, and he's developed a lot. Uh, he's not. He's not yet played fifty first-class games as no. well. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing that the ceiling is potentially higher there than it is with. Leach possibly, who's kind of probably got about as good as he's going to get at this stage of his of his career. Moen, we know, is a bit hit and miss, whereas Best could in two three years be a significantly better bowler than than he is now. Possibly, we don't know that for sure, but that's that's the signs over the last six months that he's improving quickly. Yeah, he, he bowled. He was very unlucky, or rather, it was very marginal decision that went in Ruston Chase's favour in the first Test match in the on the final day, and if he'd got that wicket, it was one of those forty five. De- percent of the ball was hitting um if you've got that wicket then he'd have he'd have had an effect on that final day it may have even precipitated a, an England win the the holder wicket was probably the crucial moment of the of the last two or three hours really because you never thought the holder was was gonna gonna not be there at the end and the question seemed to be can people hold on with holder as it was it, it was a it was a beauty he'd been pumped down the ground for six the, the previous ball tossed it up there again and it was, it was a jaffa so yeah he he has deliveries in his pocket and he's accurate enough to do this to do this job as a containing spinner 
uh, in the Giles vein. So yeah, it makes sense why they're picking him. Um, and I imagine that he'll play the play the full summer really from here on in. I thought just on how he how England use him, I thought it was quite strange because that was arguably the best ball of the Test match, and he bowled a very similar ball in his first over, like, tossing it up outside off stump. The pitch was taking quite a lot of turn even early in the Test, and it just spun spun into I think the batsman's hope and spun just over his mm, middle stump. Hope, yeah. Um, but then for the next 20 overs, the best bowl in the Test match, he was just bowling over the wicket where he has a worse record in his career against right-handers than around the wicket, aiming at middle stump, trying to spin it in and get the batsman to basically flick it to short leg or leg slip, a ploy that didn't really work um, all, all Test against, other than against the tail-enders. Um, ben, do, do you agree that, that, that Bess is, should play for the, the whole the whole summer? Well, it was interesting in the South Africa series after the second test when we discussed Best versus Leach for the third and I was told by someone on this panel that uh, uh, Leach was just a much better bowler. And I guess Best has shown since then that the, the gap has narrowed slightly, but I think that gap still exists for me. Uh, and I think if you're looking at building to India, I think there's a couple of things taken into account. I think Joe Root is a less sure captain of a spin bowler than of a pace bowler and so in a way I think you want to get him just captaining both knowing what field to set for both how to captain when the ball's turning away from the bat as Leach would to the right handers versus where it's turning in and for example in the last test when you do have Wokes and Curran playing that need for the extra batting that best gives you over Leach is lessened so I, I see a quite a strong argument for rotating them based on the makeup of the rest of the seam attack and I, I think there is something in Yaz's point that, that you're right that Leach sort of you know he's a bit of a cult hero because of the you know the one not out and he wipes his glass or whatever but he is also a really good bowler and I, I think there is a chance that he could get better he's, he's not he's not particularly old he doesn't spin the ball that hard and maybe not as hard as, I, I, as best, I think what you'll but... get I think you'll see both of them play in India mm-hmm. and I think you'll see my prediction of what it's worth, I think Jack Leach will probably out-bowled on Bess in India in the way that Panasar out-bowled Swan in India in 2012. But Bess will play a lot more test matches than, than, than Leach because there is more of a package there. Well, I think the discussion is kind of uh, influenced a lot by the fact how much he's improved. So Bess is obviously so much better than when he played in 2018, but does that necessarily mean he's England's best spinner now? Mm. I still don't think he is. I think he's bowled pretty well. He's been like a, a good 7 out of 10 but West Indies do have 10 right-handers, and I think that should influence it. If England are picking teams to win test matches now, look at the Pakistan series. Well, Pakistan have got Baba, Shafiq, Azarali, 3-4-5. Um, Rizwan as well, who's got 100 in their warm-up game. A lot of right-handers England need to get out this summer. Um, if they were exactly the same in quality, I'd still pick Leach, and I think Leach is still slightly ahead. And looking at the next test, if England pick Wokes in particular, you don't need best of batting at all. And then it just comes to who's the best spin bowler, and I think that, that is Jack Leach. And that's not a comment on saying that Bess has bowled badly. I don't think he has. I think he's bowled pretty well. But to win a test match, I think, um, I think Jack Leach is more likely to do that. Yeah. And I'll make the point again, he hasn't disappointed England in his 10 test matches in the team. So it's got, that's very true. It's, it's good that we're even able to have this debate about English spin and it shows it's, it's looking, in, be- looking, yeah, looking be- in better shape than it was. Because usually when you go, you have the England subcontinent tour, you've got your spinner who's in place and you're like, who do we, the two we pick out of county cricket, is it the bloke who took 20 wickets because he's the leading spin wicket taker in county cricket? Now you, you could go there with Bess, Leach, Moen. Th- three, who by then, could be relatively experienced test cricketers rather than previously who they, they had to pluck out Batty at the age of 39 or Ansari. Ansari. Ben, right? and these would actually be test spinners 
uh, of a similar standing, or Rashid, who hadn't played any test cricket for, or first-class cricket for a long time. This time, they'll actually have three spinners who know what they're doing in test cricket. And I'm not saying they'll go out there and beat India, but they seem better equipped in that area than they have been for, for quite some time. That'll be an interesting dilemma, though, when it comes to probably not what we're discussing now. But uh, if you do have... Because you don't really need three spinners in a lineup in India, considering how the pitches have changed slightly there now. So And with Root can do it easily decent enough for a third spin role as well. So. Yeah. So if you have Moeen like, back to someone near his best in a squad, and then Don Best and Jack Leach, do you pick... Is it Moe and Leach? Is it Bess and Leach? Is it Moe and Bess? Which has been an interesting discussion for a pod in, in a couple of months. <laughs> um, ben, very quickly, what about West Indies? Do you think they'll make any changes to their top seven? Neither Shea Hope or John Campbell have passed 30 yet this series. Yeah, well, I was just looking at the the, the one backup batsman in the squad is this guy, Nakuma Bonner, who has a, a first-class batting average of 27. Um, he did make, he did average 58 in the in the most recent first class season and scored 200s but those were both the second and third hundreds of his career so the the reserves are are not that deep either which is different to how they are in the pace bond department so I mean you'd almost back Rakeem Cornwall because he is sort of a bit of an experienced test cricketer he's kind of shown he's got the metal for it to almost if you push if you shove everyone up one give you probably I would say you leave shy hope out because he just looks just completely out of sorts whereas John Campbell is playing shots that he shouldn't be playing but you know there's a chance he might sort of flash his way to a 40 odd and uh I think that's almost a a better bet for, for deepening the batting the other guy is Joshua Silby he's not in the proper squad he's in the reserve squad but he did make lots of runs in in the warm-up game when no one else did and had a very good first class season as well but yeah I thought Hope was looking quite good in the second innings till he got out I he's such a peculiar cricketer I it's amazing he hasn't kind of nailed more scores. Mm. But at some point, they have to at least try someone else, don't they? You can't just keep doing it. I mean, if I'd be amazed if Hope has a worse test average than John Campbell when they both call time on their careers. But the way things are going, that might well be the case. In other news, uh, the T20 World Cup has officially been postponed. There will be a T20 World Cup in 2021 and 2022 but the ICC have yet to make a decision on where they'll be yet. One of those will be in India. One of them will be in Australia. The 2021 Women's World Cup that is set to take place in New Zealand in early 2021 has not yet been postponed. Um, what are the chances of that being postponed? Uh, the, the women's one? The ICC released a video today marking 200 days to the start of the tournament. So I think if that was in, about to be postponed imminently, I don't think they would have done that. The, um, the issue for me, so New Zealand has obviously declared itself COVID-free, which yeah. is great, but I think they might have issues with the, there's still a war, uh, sorry, a qualifying event to be held in the warm, in the lead up, which right. was supposed to be in Sri Lanka, has been postponed, no mm. date yet set for it. Uh, and they, that decides five of the 10 places at the at the World Cup. It's, it may, maybe they'll just like sort of find a way to, to fudge the qualification, just change the protocols yeah. for this time. That might be what they do. But okay. yeah, so... It's just I'm getting married during that tournament and I need all the, all the people there I can get, you know. <laughs> and half of them are going to be over there otherwise. Um, there is a new Wisden Cricket Monthly out this week. Joe, what's in it? Uh, well, Phil talked earlier about the, the Stuart Broad profile by Derek Pringle, uh, which is half our cover story. We've sort of done a, a mashup cover for probably the first time, I would say. Yeah, I think we've got away with it. So we think... 
Well, yeah, sure. we have got away with it. Really so, um, <laughs> so we've got the Stuart Broad profile, uh, but we've also got a feature on um, the best f- cricket photography. So we've got a selection of writers and photographers to, to pick out their favourite photograph and write a few words about why it's special to them. We also speak to Gareth Copley and Tom Shaw and Patrick Eager, three of the best photographers in the business, or Patrick Eager is the doyen of cricket photography, considered the best ever, about their crafts, about how their craft has changed, about how to take a great pic. Uh, picture talking specifics about certain players they like photographing um, which has been a real fun fun thing to do to put together um, what else have we got in there got Gary Kirsten interview who uh, talks about why he missed out on the England head coach role well we're launching a diversity series aren't we Joe we are go on we are uh, so we are doing a six-part series looking at cricket's diversity problem um, so Phil has written a kind of introduction to that series uh, followed by a piece by me on the barriers that exist for black cricketers in this country uh, speaking to quite a lot of people in the game at all different levels um, about why black cricketers are either put off or actually the system is just not working as it should do um, which was really interesting to look into I learned a lot um, hopefully people will learn a bit from reading it and over the next five issues, we'll be looking at various other, because this is not just about black cricketers. Clearly, cricket's had a diversity problem for, for a long, long time, or about as long as it has existed. Um, looking at other issues in the game uh, over the next five months. Um, so keep an eye out for those. Uh, Steve Smith, that's the other one. Exclusive <laughs> interview with Steve Smith. So it's 10 years, almost to the day, since he made his test debut. Yeah, last week. Last week, was it? He took three for 51, and he batted at number nine in the trade <laughs> So things have changed a bit since yeah. then. He's quite quite a good batsman. He's shifted up the order. Yeah. Um, so Adam Burnett, who uh, is an Australian freelance writer, has interviewed Smith about the defining innings of his career so far, the t- 10 steps to greatness, we've called it, um, which aren't the innings you would necessarily think of, um, some kind of slightly obscure ones which uh, people might not even have heard about. Uh, so it's a really interesting read to see how he's got from, as you describe, a, a leg-spinning all-rounder to the, the best batsman mm. ever seen. Sorry, seen since Bradman, not ever seen. Oh. That'd be a stretch. I've not seen Bradman, so... That's true. Yeah. We've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I know you guys are both obsessed with touring through old Getty photos, so I guess you enjoy putting this... Well, we kind of have off. to do it for the job. True. But it does... But you enjoy it. it. There we are some no, parts of your job you don't necessarily enjoy. obsessed with making That's magazines. It. You do one every yeah. month. <laughs> 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 the, the, the best one has to be Christian Ryan author of Golden Boy, everyone's favourite cricket book, um, who is a hard man to pin down, to say the least. He's always somewhere in the outback of Australia, finishing his latest prose poem, and it's very difficult to nail down. But I managed to get hold of him, and he sent something through that night. So it was there in my emails the following morning, and it was a photograph, inevitably, from Fenner's 1973, Trinidad women against England. Young, young England women. young women, yeah. Uh, and it's a stunning photograph, of course, but it's a very, very Christian Ryan kind of pick, you know, um, ostensibly without any kind of narrative, you know, but he was seeing um, kind of brutalist architecture in it and, and, and kind of unconscious narrative in there as well and all sorts. And so it just allowed these folks to... to to bring about some flights of fancy, I suppose, and it's spread over 30 pages. It does look and read beautifully, I have to say. Um, more interviews are remembered. We sent it to print a whole week ago, so it's, it's difficult for me to remember this stuff. Wakar Yunus. Oh, he's in it. Yeah, Jason Wackar, Gillespie. Yeah. 
Rob Key. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> what a top three that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, excellent. Head to wisdom.com to get yourself a copy. Um, and finally, we've not done a Saturday Night Stats for a long time. Um, Shahida Freely paid 27 tests over the course of his career. In those 27 tests, there were nine different Pakistan captains in that time, uh, which mean. is pretty extraordinary, including himself. Can um, you name them? Uh, Actually, no, that's a bad I've, idea. I've already, had a, I've, I've already had a look, but can you guys name them? Do you want to? Nah. No, you don't want to. Sorry, cool. shouldn't have gone down that route. I instantly regretted <laughs> it. <laughs> and obviously, just a 3D... I don't, but... Afridi captained his first time in his in his last ever Test match and kind of said halfway through the game, yeah, not I'm not really nervous. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was great. Okay, was Proper club Smith, cricket, isn't it? It was a Steve it? Smith debut Test match as well. Yes, it was. Yeah, um, yeah from one the, leg spinning around to another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, his first <laughs> Test match in four years as well, and just called it called it quits halfway through. But he got caught on the boundary at a quite yeah. crucial point of the game. And just realise this, this isn't for me. I can sympathise. Um, when I when I, I play cricket rarely these days, I always think I look forward to it, and then halfway through, I don't really fancy it anymore. So I can I can sympathise. He just did it at a Test match at Lords. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, quite an underrated Test cricketer, Shaheen Afridi. Uh, he's good batting record. Average thirty six, and um, in the nineteen ninety nine Chennai Test, which Pakistan won by twelve runs, he scored one hundred and forty one opening batting in the third innings. Yeah. As a well teenager. I guess. He played, he played well against time. India. He won a game in Bangalore as well uh, with a 30 ball, 50 in second innings, took five or six wickets in the game. Yeah, so he always turned up against India and then didn't turn up at all, literally, <laughs> elsewhere. Excellent. Anyway, cheers, guys. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend and if you're feeling especially kind, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.